welcome to church. If you don't know me, Joe Wilch is my name. Let's pray as we get into John 8. Father, we thank you for uh, your Bible, the Gospel, uh, for Jesus. We pray we'll understand him, we'll understand ourselves all the better. And we would know whose child we are. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, thank you to all who came on Friday for the funeral of Marta Anderson, uh, a very much loved and cherished member of our church family for over 30 years. Uh, if you hadn't heard, Marta passed away uh, from her cancer last Sunday night after I announced in the morning it was going to be another few weeks. Uh, she died last Sunday night in a bed, surrounded by family and friends, which was really uh, the way she wanted to go. She was a delightful lady. Uh, very quirky, uh, strange red hats and, and all kinds of things. Uh, she would never shake your hand on the right hand. It was always on the left because she was left-handed. You had to conform to her ways. Uh, she was incredibly giving of herself, apart from the handshakes, uh, always prayerful uh, and uh, a great sense of humour and a very inquisitive mind. Uh, Mara and I had been meeting up for some weeks uh, and, and, and occasionally before that, uh, since she had the cancer, and the last few weeks in hospital, uh, to uh, read through and talk through the sermon passages because she didn't want to miss out on what was happening here. Uh, and she wanted to find out what we were all studying and so on. And uh, had we met up this week, John 8 is the passage uh, we would have read. Uh, in fact, when I did see her a week and a half ago, the last time I saw her alive, I had only just read John 8 in preparation for today. It's the first time ever I've been ahead of time. And I turned up at the hospital and she just had the news that the operation that she'd had, which would extend her life, had failed and it was only going to be a matter of days or weeks. Uh, and it makes Jesus' claims uh, very stark in this passage. He makes two extraordinary claims in John chapter 8. The first one's in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, same again in verse 51 towards the end. I tell you the truth, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they explained, now we know you are demon possessed. Abraham died, so did the prophets. Yet you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? It's an extraordinary claim that Jesus makes. And it's a little hard to be sitting with someone who's just been told they're about to die, trying to hold your own emotions together, let alone with the family there too, and to have Jesus' words in your mind, having just read them, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never taste death. But by the same token, it brings his claim into incredibly sharp focus, doesn't it? Death is an obscene reality. It brings misery and sadness. It leaves us who are left behind bereft and in pain. Marta was only 56, uh, so young, so full of life, a lovely woman, wife of Greg for many years, uh, mother of five, gracious and kind and generous, so what horror and pain and hurt lies in her death. And not just her, Abraham died. The prophets died. We all die. What do you mean, Jesus, when you promise that those who are with you will not taste death? 
It's an extraordinary claim. And it's not just life he promises, he also claims to be able to bring freedom. That's the second extraordinary claim he makes, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so 36, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He says his teaching is the truth that liberates, and his freedom is the only real freedom. That without him, you'll die in your sins, but with him you'll be freed. You'll be freed from sin. You'll be free from death. And sometimes it's not until you're sitting there face to face with death that you feel the real weight of it all. Part of the tragedy of the 21st century world is that we have a completely warped view of death. Uh, on the one hand, we've completely removed ourselves from death. We've sanitised it so that we, we put people away in nursing homes and you know, palliative care units so that we don't have to deal with it ourselves. We might just drop in, but it's from time to time and we really don't want to be there. Uh, we don't have to watch them fade through the hours and the days and the months and go through the process of dying. We don't talk about death. It's not polite in conversation, though it's the one thing we all face. We push it away and don't want to think about it. But on the other hand, we've turned death into entertainment. Uh, our movies, shows and video games are full of death. Uh, the top-rated TV show in the world is NCIS. What happens to happen every episode to make NCIS work? Someone has to die. And they have to die in a bizarre kind of way, in strange circumstances. And we go, ooh, how do we figure it out with, uh, with Jethro Gibbs or you know, the CSI team or Perot or whoever takes your fancy? And, and now we even have to pull the trigger ourselves to deal out death to our friends on screen and we laugh and scream abuse as we're you know, killing each other in conflict at arms or whatever the, I don't know what the latest games are. Call of Duty, there you go, or Battlefield um, or Halo. You know, as the blood flies around the screen and we're going, yeah, suck it on this. Yeah. It's what the 1950s sociologist Jeffrey Gora called the pornography of death, uh, that we now find it titillating because it's been so abstracted from reality. And he was talking about 1950s movies and books and, well, they didn't have computer games. What would he think today? But when you stand face to face with a dead body, and I don't know if you've had to do that. I've had to do that lots of times now. Uh, it's a great honour and it's confronting. But you see the, the sheer magnitude and stark reality of Jesus' claim and that he's talking about not just abstract ideas or vague ideas. These are deeply personal claims about you and about me. Personal because we all experienced it in our families. We know death is around. Personal because we all face death ourselves. And personal because... Uh, of the incredible implications that these claims make about life and freedom now for you and for me if he's right, if he's true. In fact, that's the bulk of the discussion here in this chapter. Jesus just kind of whacks out these two great claims. I can bring life, you will not taste death. And I can bring freedom and you will be free. He whacks them out there, but then the real discussion is around the implications. The implications of... Just who is this Jesus that can make these incredible or ridiculous claims, depending on how you view them? Uh, and implications about who does he think we are that we need to hear them? First issue, who does he think he is? A 30-year-old man stands up in a temple and says, you believe in me, you'll never taste death. 
You trust me, I'll give you freedom. And you think, who, who do you think you are? <laughs> who do you think you are that can make these claims? And that's exactly the response he gets here. Have a look, uh, verse 24. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you don't, do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. He'll indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Or again in verse 51, I tell you the truth, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, so the prophets, yet you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? He's a nutter. He's demon-possessed. He's crazy. He's what kind of bizarre weirdo claims to be able to do more than anyone else in history, more than even the father of Israel? They're pretty reasonable questions to ask, right? You know, who do you think you are? And Jesus gives two answers to that question of who he thinks he is, neither of which the crowds particularly like, neither of which they can bring themselves to believe. First answer he gives to who do you think you are, I'll tell you exactly who I am. I've come from outside. I'm not of this world. See, Jesus doesn't think of himself as a, a good man to learn lessons from, life lessons. He's not a moralist. He, he doesn't come as a social reformer, although the implications of his claims, all those things are kind of true, but they're not really what Jesus is on about. Fundamentally, he's on about something else. Verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony's valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you've got no idea where I come from or where I'm going. Or come to verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you'll look for me and you'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, well, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? So that they can't understand. He's come from somewhere and he's going somewhere. Verse 23, but he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. The extraordinary claim of Jesus is that he is not altogether human, at least in the same way that we are. There's something different. He's, he's different to the rest of us. He's not from round here. And here, not just being Ingleburn, which is the greatest place on earth, but, you know, <laughs> here on earth. And he's not hinting for the conspiracy theorists of the 20th century that, that he's uh, somehow an alien being come on a UFO who gives life because of his extraordinary medical technology. He's not been probing humans and abducting them and those kind of things, and so he's worked out the secrets of life. That's not what he means by he's not come from this world. And you can see that as he pushes his claims to the extreme in verse 58 and onwards. He says, your father... Abraham rejoiced at seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And, I mean, that's arrogant enough, isn't it? You know, it's like me saying, Captain Cook, he, he rejoiced to think of me. You know, Henry VIII, you know, he was so glad when he thought of Joe Wiltshire. I mean, just looked ahead a few hundred years and just went, ah, oh, Joe, awesome. Uh, <laughs> Abraham was 1,800 years before, and he paid attention to you. Verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Yeah, good one. Uh, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And that 
dear friends, is a showstopper. Now, maybe it's not obvious to you what he's saying, but it was totally obvious to them. It ended all arguments and it was the very reason that they picked up their stones to kill him at that very moment. If they'd had guns in their pockets, they would have pulled him out and shot him down, literally. Uh, verse 59, uh, they picked up their stones to kill him. What was so horrific about saying, before Abraham, I am? It kind of doesn't even make sense in English, does it? I mean, you mean you were? No, I am. It was so bad because he was in fact claiming to be God. Uh, because I am is the name that God gives himself back in the Old Testament. Our Bibles uh, often translate the Hebrew word Yahweh or the sort of bastardised version Jehovah as Lord. You see it in the Old Testament, that little capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's, it's the translation of the word Yahweh, uh, which means I am who I am. And it's the name of God that he gives himself. Moses asked God in Exodus chapter 3, what, who should I say has sent me? And God answered, well, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And if you look carefully, you'd see that Jesus has already dropped it in the conversation twice already in verse 24 and verse 28. Even the NIV translators don't know how to cope with that, that he's saying, I am. And so they put these little tiny square brackets that you can almost not read. You know, they put, I am who I claim to be. Uh, the who claim to be is not there. Okay? You know, he's just saying, you've got to know that I am. 24 and 28, but they missed that, just like the NIV translators. But there was no mistaking when he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am God. I am the God who was before Abraham. I am God who made Abraham. I am God who called Abraham. I am who I am. That's who Jesus is, that he's from outside of this world. He's the one who made this world, who made the universe, who made you, who made me, who runs the universe. He's God. And that's why the second thing he says about himself is that he's the son. He calls himself the son of man uh, over and over in reference to Daniel 7, a prophecy where one like a son of man will be given all authority to judge and rule mankind in the entire universe, but he also claims to be the son of God. He says that over and over again, verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, verse uh, 24, verse uh, 54, and a bunch of other times. I'll give you a couple of examples. Verse 19, then they asked him, where is your father? You don't know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Verse 28, Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am, who I claim to be, uh, I am, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Or verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. So he's saying he's got this unique relationship with the Heavenly Father, maker of the universe. He's come from his Father. He's come to do what a son should do. He's come to honour his Father, to glorify his Father, to do his Father's work, to speak his Father's teaching, to be his Father's representative in the world. That's who he thinks he is, and that's why he thinks he can offer life and freedom, because he is God, the Son, the one who's the giver of life, the maker of life. He's full of life. But Jesus' claims of bringing life and freedom have another profound implication, not just who he is, 
but who he thinks we are. He claims to bring life and freedom, but who does he think I am that I need those things? Actually, I find it a bit insulting. I find it a lot insulting. Yeah, I, I don't need Jesus to set me free. I'm already free. I'm a free citizen of Australia. I must be because they're asking me to vote next week. Yeah, I'm free. Hmm. Although that's compulsory. So uh, anyway, um, I can do what I like. I can think what I, I you know, say what I like. Yeah, what does he mean? He'll set me free. And what does he mean that he'll give me life? I'm not dead. I'm not buried. I'm, I'm alive. I'm here. Who does he think we are? And they asked that question too. Verse 33. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can he say he should set us free? Yeah, who does he think he is? Who does he think we are? Verse 41. You're doing the things your own father does. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. You know? What are you saying about us? How dare you? We're not illegitimate. We're not slaves. We're children of Father Abraham. We're even children of God. We've never been anyone's slaves. Which, if you give it a moment's thought, was a pretty stupid thing for them to say. We've never been slaves! Except maybe for 400 years in Egypt under Pharaoh, or 70 years in Babylon in exile, or ever since then we've been enslaved to the Persians. We've been enslaved to the Greeks. We've been enslaved to the Ptolemies. And now, oh, hang on, that's the Roman garrison over there, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, we were conquered by Rome. We're slaves again. (laughs) They've always been slaves. I mean, it's a stupid thing to say. But it's pretty typical, right? I mean, that's human nature. I I just don't like being put down. I don't like you telling me even if it's the truth. (laughs) Yeah, I want to hear that I'm no good. I don't want you to say negative things about me or about my family or about my country, you know. And it wasn't they jumped to the wrong conclusion that, you know, they just misheard him. Jesus is saying precisely those things. You are dead. You are slaves. But what kind of slavery is he talking about? Well, he makes that explicit. 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And being a slave to sin means that unless we're freed from that slavery, we'll die in our sins. Which is why he says, verse 21, once more Jesus said, I'm going away and you'll look for me and you will die in your sin. Or 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Now, there's nothing hard to understand about that. It's, it's so simple. And yet it's so profound. This is the human predicament. It's easily accepted, but it's almost universally denied. And here is one of the great differences between Christians and non-Christians. In fact, I think it's pretty much at the heart of the difference, really. People will not believe, they will not accept that they are slaves to sin. In fact, they're downright offended by the claim that they're sinful and that they're in bondage to sin. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. I, I could be good if I wanted to. I, I really, really could. 
um, I could live any life I want, you know, and so, you know, you don't want me to lie, I don't have to lie, but, but you don't and you can't and you know it. See, why is it that we're, we're often so disappointed with ourselves and our behaviour, let alone with yeah, other people being disappointed with us or God disappointed with us? Now, why is it we don't do the good things we, we know we ought to do, that we want to do, and we just fail to do them? And, and, and evil stuff, bad stuff, we, we do it all the time and we think, how stupid am I? You know, why do I keep doing it, though? Why do I keep saying stupid things that hurt people? Why do I um, get so dismissive when I'm tired? Why do I keep dropping in little names and things that kind of build myself up and, and tell stories in such a way that I look good in, as I'm the hero? And why do I struggle to pray like I want to and like God wants me to? You, you know those kind of feelings, right? You, know, you, you struggle, you think, oh, I'm dumb, I've been doing this stupid thing and I should stop. You know, I, I haven't been able to do the things I know I should that are right and proper and are good for me. And, and if you keep failing to do the good that you want to do and you keep doing the evil that you don't want to do, what makes you think you're running your own affairs? What makes you think you're in control? What makes you think you're not a slave to sin? It's nonsense. I've told this story before, but it's just so funny. It's worth it again. A minister friend of mine was giving a very strong sermon, as he normally does. A guy came up to him after church and said, I'm deeply offended. Boy, you're saying you're saying we're all sinful. We're all wrong and things. And, you know, I, I, I could live a perfect life if I wanted to. I, you know, let's make a bet on it. Five bucks, I can live a perfect life for this whole week coming up and I'll come back and I'll tell you that I've done it to your face. So all right, I'll take that bet. All right, went away, came back next week. It's not fair. Oh, <laughs> what's not fair? Had an argument with my wife. Well, I can, I can do it. All right, let's, let's go double or nothing. All right. Okay, well, my friend said, let's make it easy. All right, don't, don't worry about a lot of stuff. Just no lies. Don't tell a lie for a whole Just speak the truth only. And, uh, and you come back, you can win your money. And so he said, all right, easy. I can do that. Went away, came back. It's not fair. <laughs> what do you mean it's not fair? All you had to do is tell the truth. That's not hard, is it? He said, it's not fair. I got a new job on Monday. I started as a real estate agent. <laughs> 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 well, it's funny. It's true as well. It's, it's an absolutely horrible thing to come to realise that Jesus is right and I'm trapped in slavery to sin. In fact, the same friend was uh, visiting another church. Uh, they had a prayer book service, you know, this other thing here. And a uh, guy came and he said, I've just never noticed until you read that out how deeply offensive it is. You know, we pray that prayer of confession which says we're sinners. I'm not a sinner. Uh, and uh, someone else came up and pointed out that didn't say that he was a sinner, it said he was a miserable sinner. Anyway, so... <laughs> anyway. Now, don't believe the lie that we're all basically good and it's only the system that's evil. Why are systems evil? Because the people who made them, the people who inhabit them, we're evil. Because they're made by people. We're the problem. 
But if you think that's offensive, Jesus goes even further. They say, we're not slaves, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, right, you're descendants of Abraham physically, biologically, just like the Muslims will claim today as well, as well as the Jews. But being a blood relation does not make you a real son of Abraham because a real son bears the family likeness, bears the family resemblance. Uh, it was interesting at Marta's funeral on Friday, when it was pretty cool to see 200 people in here, uh, absolutely packed out. Um, pretty easy to pick who the relatives were. Okay, I mean she got there were ten. She's one of ten, and all the cousins. You can just go, yep, you're an Anderson, you're an Anderson, you're an, Anderson. <laughs> yeah. Or oh, sorry, a ruleless because that's her maiden name. But yeah, um, yeah. Or think of my kids. I don't know how many times people have told me my girls look just like me which I gather is a compliment. Uh, so <laughs> well, poor kids. Yeah. Especially Sarah. Oh, no. Yeah. Kids take after their parents, don't they? Uh, and not just looks, but mannerisms and habits and foibles and uh, interests. You know, uh, Andrew White's children, Mr. PhD computer nerd here, they all play the heaviest board games possible in the world that will just blow your mind and they're, they're only, what, 10 and you know, playing stuff that I can't do. You know? <laughs> um, interests, ways of going about things. They even, you know, in the olden days, took over the family business. Phrases. You watch kids and, and you see their parents in them. Yeah, just looking over there. Yeah. <laughs> Front row, perfect example, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Don't you talk, Jeremy. Your poor daughters. That's no, right. <laughs> Actually, they take after Debbie, so it's okay. <laughs> Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you are Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. So you're not a son of Abraham because you've got his genetic code. You're a true son of Abraham because you're like Abraham. You're on Abraham's side. You're doing Abraham's family business. Which is the family business of what? It's the family business of hearing the word of God and doing it. Abraham heard God say, leave your country, go to this other country. I'll give you a home and blessing. And he went, okay, I'll do it. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not that he did good, it's that he believed God, trusted him. Abraham was so great, so special, because he heard the word of God, he trusted it, and then he went and did it. And so they changed tack in verse 41. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And God was the father of Israel. He created them and drawn them and given them a land and home, and he called them his children. And our society says much the same thing when we pray the Lord's Prayer at public events or when Parliament opens our Father in heaven. Yeah, we're calling upon God as the father of Australia. And again, Jesus argues, well, you're not his sons either. 
Because you don't act like God. You don't live for God. You're not doing the kind of things that he would in this world. Because if you did, you would recognise his true son when he comes. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm now here. I've not come on my own. And his conclusion, verse 47, whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The true man of God, the true woman of God, will hear the voice of God, they'll recognise his voice, and they'll want to do what God says. And if you recognise his voice, well, you'll recognise his son when he shows up and you see him face to face. Well, if they're not Abraham's children, and they're not God's children, whose children are they? And Jesus' answer in verse 44 has got to be one of the most staggeringly offensive, confrontational things that has ever been said in the history of mankind. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. We're about to vote, and uh, you know what the uh, have you ever watched Question Time, Parliament House? I don't know, it's, well, it's boring because of the questions. It's interesting because of the insults. <laughs> now, both parties are pretty good at slinging insults. In fact, it's a polished art in Australian politics how to be rude to the other party. Um, but that would be called for unparliamentary language, wouldn't it? You'd be kicked out by the speaker. You know, looking at the party leader across the room and saying, you're just like your father, who happens to be Satan. <laughs> Why did Jesus call them the children of the devil? Was he having a bad day? No, it's because he saw the family resemblance. For what are the characteristics of the devil? How would you recognise the devil? Or his children? The horns? <laughs> a red cape? A little goatee beard? Yeah, kind of thing. Uh, I reckon if you saw someone dressed like that, you'd, you'd conclude not that they're the child of the devil, but they're going to a fancy dress party. No, the, the two characteristics Jesus points out of the devil to watch for are that he lies and he murders. You see a liar or a murderer? you know you have a child of the devil. In fact, the way that Satan murders is by his lies. Because of his lies, that's how he kills people. Think about the obscenity that is death, the horror it is. Why does it happen if God made us and God's good? Why do beautiful people in our lives, like Marta Anderson, suffer and die and vanish? Why are they taken from us? Why? Well, because of the devil's lies. Remember how death entered the world. 
God promised our forefathers that if they defied him, they would die. But the devil whispered in their ears, he whispered his lies. God's not really going to do anything. He doesn't care. He's a wimp anyway. He's, he's weak. He's pathetic. And you know what? God's jealous. He's holding out on you. You know, you want the best life. You want the most fun. You know, God's, God's trying to hold it back from you. Just ignore him. Do what you want. Nothing will happen. And they did. And they died. And we believe the same lies of Satan, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't see, that God won't do anything, that God's holding out on us. He's not the way to real life. Satan's still lying and we're still dying. The people had God standing in front of them. They heard the words of eternal life and they picked up their stones to kill him. They acted just like their father. So the real question that we're all confronted with is whose child are you? Who is your father? Because you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil and there is no in-between. You can't sit on a fence because it's a matter of which family do you belong to. You can be a son of slavery or a son of freedom. You can be a daughter of slavery or a daughter of freedom. For if the devil is your father, then you live the life of sin as a slave to sin. You'll die by your sins and you'll die by your father's intent because he actually hates you. He has always wanted to take your life from you. Or if by Jesus' death you're one of God's sons or one of God's daughters, well, then you're set free. You're bought for another family, for a a heavenly father. You, You can't earn it any more than you can have plastic surgery so that you look just like a wheelchair. It will not make you one, even if you wanted to be. I'm not sure why you would, but you need to be adopted into God's family. And that is why Jesus came from outside into this world. The Son come from the Father to enable you to change families so that by his death on the cross he could set you free by paying the price for your adoption. Adoption is very expensive. And adoption into God's family comes at the price of his son. But he paid that price so that you could be adopted as one of God's children, forgiven, made alive again in him never to die in eternity. Hear his promise. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I am the light of the world. You'll never see darkness if you're with me. You'll not taste death. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Marta Anderson was a daughter of God. She always told the family that she was adopted when she wasn't telling them that they were adopted. (laughs) But she was adopted into a heavenly family with God as a father. Changed her life. That's why 200 people turned out to celebrate and give thanks. Some were confused. They didn't understand why she was like she was. Because she'd been bought for another family. Whose child are you? Who is your father? 
Now, Father, we do thank you that you send your Son, Jesus Christ, in this world to pay for our sins, to pay for our adoption, to set us free, to give us life and light. And, Father, we beg of your mercy that those who are here today who are sitting in darkness and are still children of the devil, you would call them out of that darkness and into your family. We pray for our community, our nation, our world, living in such darkness, in rebellion against you, where people hate your claims and hate your son. And we pray that you would change them because it's only by your grace that they can be changed. We thank you the adoption price has been paid and that you are calling people back into your family. We pray that we might be instruments of that if we're part of the family, if we're not part of the family, that we would join it and very soon. Please change our lives. Help us to be like Abraham who heard your word and trusted you and did what you said. Help us to bear that family resemblance and not the family resemblance of our old family the family of Satan who believe lies, who tell lies, who hate and murder. We pray that you would change us. In Jesus' name, the one who enables that to happen. Amen.